today's bonus episode of Taxpayer Talks, we interview TFR Taxpayer Champion Tony Tinderholt and get his thoughts on the upcoming legislative session, as well as his candidacy for Speaker of the Texas House, and efforts to ensure that chairmanships for committees in the House of Representatives are awarded only to the majority party in power. It's a jam-packed episode. You're not going to want to miss it. Let's get into it. Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, and it's only made possible from generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. This is Tim Harden, president of Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. I'm here with our executive director, Jeremy Kitchen, and special guest representative, Tony Tinderholt. How are you doing, Tony? Good. I hope you guys are doing well uh, as well. Well, we're, we're doing really great because we're close to the year end. And you know, the last couple of weeks of the year, we get a little bit of a break before the crazy legislative session. So I'm looking forward to a little bit of rest. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think the next five months for us is going to be pretty busy. It is. It is. Well, could you quickly tell us, you know, who you are, who you represent and, uh, you know, why you're important? Absolutely. Uh, not really all that important. Just, you know, <laughs> I'm just representing about 200,000 people in Arlington, Darworthington Gardens. Hearst, Euless, Bedford area, um, been in office about eight years, so four terms, got elected to another two, heading back down to the Texas House to do the work of the people. Awesome. Awesome. And for uh, for those who aren't familiar, Tony has been a taxpayer champion for TFR every single session that he has served. He has been one of the most consistent conservative legislators, uh, legislators in uh, the Texas legislature. And so uh, we're a big fan of his. We're happy to have him on the program today. So we're going to go ahead and get right into it. Uh, first thing we want to talk about is really just the uh, the Republican Party priorities. There's been a lot of talk about this. You know, you have the speaker's race, you have the dim chair. Uh, there's There's been a lot of interactions on Twitter. I think Rep. Frank had some interactions about how important these priorities are. So just kind of want to get your take on what you expect, you know, uh, with the eight priorities that have been uh, directed for the Republican majority party. Uh, what is the chatter behind the scenes? What are we to expect uh, coming into the next legislative session? Let me start off and kind of talk about the, the the priorities and kind of why they're so important. We all put, uh, those of us that are probably going to talk on your show, we put an R behind our name, Republican. Um, I don't believe that I go down to Austin and create the priorities. I feel like the party creates those. There's a voting system. There's a process. I believe about 5,000 delegates were down in, in Houston. I was one of the people that went down, about 5,000 people went down to Houston. Uh, I was one of them. But we have people that put those priorities together. And there's a process. And when you put an R behind your name, you're pretty much saying that I'm going to push the priorities of the party that supports me. Um, so I'm a firm believer that my job is to go to Austin, represent about 200,000 people in my district, do some of the things that the people in my district need me to do. But I also go to Austin to push and try to pass every one of those eight priorities as clean and strong as possible. And so when you see me go to Austin, you're going to see me every day fighting to pass all eight priorities. Look, we're going to pass, we're going to vote a, a thousand times, 1,200 times, 1,400 times. 
eight times for the Republican Party is what they're asking. They're asking us to make eight of those a priority. And so personally, I think it's too easy. I think we should pass these. We have a Republican head house, Republican held Senate, and we have a Republican governor. So I'm going to kind of go through these priorities because I know a lot of people out there have probably heard them. Some people may not have. But when I say them, Republicans listening are going to go, yes, that I support that. Sadly, in the Texas House, we can't always get these priorities across the line. And it's our job to try to push them through. So the first one is protecting elections. You know, last session we passed a bill, but we there's no felony uh, there's no felony that is committed if someone commits fraud. There's no civil penalties. And the Criminal Court of Appeals has said that uh, our own attorney general cannot pros- prosecute fraud. So in election integrity and protecting the elections, I think it's important that we do those three things. I, I'm, I, I kind of want to have a back and forth. You, I'm guessing you guys agree with the fact that all three of those things need to happen this next session. Yeah, I think election integrity is 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 the cornerstone of our republic. And if we don't have secure elections, then it's pointless talking about things like fiscal responsibility, because uh, what, what are we really even talking about here if we can't secure our elections? Right. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was overseas. A lot of people know I spent 21 years in the military and it's almost tear jerking to watch people that have never been able to vote in their entire lives family members, their great grandparents have never voted and they get that purple stamp on their thumb and they come by and thank you for allowing them to have open and fair elections. And in America, it's not even a felony and you can't have, uh, you can't have the attorney general prosecute it. I mean, come on, that's easy. So that should be really easy for Republicans to pass clean, pass that bill clean, if the Democrats decide they want to walk out again, we'll get to that one in a minute, Democrat chairs. But uh, I, I fear that when we start trying to pass these, they're going to walk. But securing the border and protecting Texans, you know, that's another easy one. It's horrible that the federal government is lying to people and telling them that the border is secure. I've been to the border several times over the last six or eight years since I've been elected. Uh, I think anyone that watches any bit of TV or reads any little bit of, of, of news can tell you the border is not secure. Let me tell you what's happening at the border for the people that haven't been down there. The fact that President Biden found other more important things to do this week when he was in Arizona, I believe, than go to the border. And the fact that his team is telling people that the border is secure is an outright lie. We have horrible human trafficking disgusting, despicable crime of taking human beings, selling and renting them to other people while they're captive. So they're holding young women and children captive, sometimes boys, and they're selling them. Let's think about that for a moment. That's just one of the things that's happening at the border. And we were having trouble with enough jail space for these felons that are trafficking humans at the border. I just, we talk about rape, we talk about murder. Human trafficking is another one of those disgusting, despicable crimes that our federal government is saying isn't happening at the border because it's secure. Then let's add to it the estimated over 100,000 deaths from fentanyl that's just, I'm not even going to say bleeding across the border. It is flooding across the border at unprecedented numbers. I think I saw on the news the other day that five 
thousand capsules or five thousand pills that would kill five million people was uh, picked up at the border. What's not getting picked up? I mean, come on. And then the fact that people are coming across illegal, it's just illegal. And the cartels are running the border. The crime that's happening at the border is just despicable. So I think we need to declare an invasion. An invasion. I think the governor needs to step up. He's already uh, done pieces and parts of it, but we need to step up. I like what some of the other states are doing. Putting up two levels of uh, shipping containers, that's a beautiful thing. We're putting up our own wall. I think we need to do it here in Texas. There's so much that we can do to protect the border. If, if, if people are watching this, I doubt that a bunch of liberal people are watching, but if you're liberal and you're watching and you just want illegal immigrants to be able to come across the border, I'm begging you to think for one moment about the people that are dying from fentanyl in America and think about those young women and children that are being trafficked at the border and the 50 plus people that were left in a trailer to die and suffocate, the people that are crossing private and public property that die of thirst and, and they literally die of heat exhaustion. Let's think about them for a moment. Just think about the human toll. So protecting the border should be easy for Republicans. And I'm guessing you guys feel the same way about that one as well. Tony, you mind if I ask you, this is, we actually talk about this issue pretty frequently um, on this podcast and with other folks, right? I, I think certainly we, we agree with the Republican priority that we should absolutely <laughs> secure our border um, on a state level, as you know, as a lawmaker, right? Y'all approved uh, um, uh, the, the last legislative session, um, some funding that funding has now increased over the course of the interim for operation Lone Star. I think a a little bit over $4 billion. No doubt y'all are going to be asked again as lawmakers to appropriate additional money uh, for the kind of continuance of Operation Lone Star. What is, in your opinion, um, what are metrics to define success, right, when it comes to the state's border mission? Obviously, it's a responsibility that you you noted the uh, the federal government is just not not taken up. So the state has step, stepped in. What, if anything, do you think that the state needs to do better, or maybe we're doing everything better already when it comes to Operation Lone Star? So interestingly, we have increased funding, and we had a, uh, a great uh, congressman in, in the U.S. Congress that came from Texas that was a state rep with me, then a senator, and now he's a congressman, that authored a bill where I think that Texas should be able to recoup the billions of dollars we've spent from the federal government. Great bill. It's not our job to protect the border, right? But our state troopers, think about this for a moment, state troopers that pledge an, an, an oath to the state of Texas, they're going to go protect Texas. And they think that they're going to go do it by doing law enforcement activities on the highways protecting us. And then our National Guards men and women uh, that are down at the border, they didn't expect that this is what they're going to do. So my hat's off to them for doing the mission uh, that they never thought they would be doing. They're tasked with being down at the border for a year. I think state troopers go down uh, for nine days every month or every six weeks. So I think we have to tip our hat and say thank you to them for doing something that they probably didn't expect they'd be doing. Uh, you know, we get a lot of numbers about fentanyl and drug and weapon seizures and human trafficker, traffickers and numbers of people that were uh, turned away that never came across because we were a deterrent at the border. We, that we have estimated gotaways, the people that we think got away, number of people detained that uh, are indeed illegal immigrants that came across. 
those are all great numbers to have. And it's metrics that we need to be sure that we're, those numbers are increasing or decreasing month over month. Um, but I'll be honest, this should be a lot easier. It really should. When you take all of the all of the politics out of it. We're a nation and state of law and order. I have been to nations in combat where law and order didn't matter a whole bunch. Guess what? Those borders were very well secured. They were secured. I watched America's sons and daughters die on borders of other countries, trying to protect other countries' borders. Yet we have people just flooding across ours and our federal government has not allowed not allowed those tasked with doing that job at our border to actually do their job. Um, I think it's purposeful. I think it's despicable. I think it's disgusting. I think that a lot of the metrics are being collected, need to be collected. But what I'd really like to see is uh, de-incentivizing people coming over here. Stop the desire and the want to come to America. What do I mean by that? Let's not give them things that they would call are free. Let's stop giving them taxpayer-funded things when they come to America. Let's start having the federal government deport them. Let's turn them back if they come across. We can't just keep accepting unlimited numbers in here. Look, I saw something uh, in the news that's kind of, a, I'm going to venture off a little bit and come back, uh, in our country where there were semi-coordinated attacks on power grids around the country. Think about that for a moment. I've been talking about that for eight years. What if those coordinated attacks are dry runs on power grids and substations where people broke in, they shot them up, tens of thousands of people without power? We don't know who's coming across that border. We have an idea. We know what we catch, but we don't know what we don't catch. There's a whole section of the FBI down at the border that their job is to track people from adversarial nations that are coming across and they, they can't track them all. And so... The metrics we're gathering are good, but I'd sure like to see uh, turnbacks. I'd like to see us taking people and deporting them and pushing them back. I'm just frustrated that the federal government is totally lying to America. The Democrats in Congress are lying to America. There's no way around it. Illegal immigrants are flooding the border, and it's fixing to get worse next month. Um, it's disappointing. It's sad. And the, the sad truth is Americans and people from foreign countries are dying, literally losing their lives at the border because the federal government won't do their job. The, the next priority, I believe, and this is a, a sad one Tim and I talk about, not necessarily on the show a lot, um, but is the banning of gender modification of children. Obviously, this is something that was a priority last uh, legislative session or last cycle for the Republican Party um, of Texas. Um, something, you know, I'm sure the, the history of, right, is you had a few different pieces of legislation passed through the Senate, um, not necessarily make them way, their way through the legislative process in the House. What are your thoughts on the prospects this go around? So let's think about what the legislature has done over the years, specifically in the last couple of years. So in the last couple of years, um, you can't smoke cigarettes until you're 21. I think that's what we passed a couple of years ago, right? Um, we've passed in, in historical legislative sessions where you can't drink unless you're 21. Well, I joined the military at 17. 
So it, we'll just call it 18 though. At 18, the average person in America can make adult decisions. I joined the military at 17 with my mother's signature, but let's just pretend for a moment the number is 18. At 18 years old, I'm trusted to go to foreign nations and carry a weapon and make life or death decisions that can impact national and international news. Think about that for a moment. 18-year-olds are entrusted with that, right? But at 21, you can't drink or smoke in the state of Texas until you're 21. It's law. We can't, we can't, it, 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 it is what it is right now. But in the state of Texas, if a child feels like they were born in the wrong skin, a child is born and thinks that they should be a male or a female. Let's, let's, let, let this, this conversation, it's even sad that we have to have it. I think some of those children, they might be born that way. I don't know. I, I just don't, but maybe they're born that way. But I think some of them are coerced into it in our public school system, which we're going to come full circle on that uh, choice, education choice here in a moment. But let's just think about the fact that you can't smoke or drink until you're 21. You can't join the military until you're 18. You can't be a law enforcement officer until you're 21. You can't carry a weapon as an armed security officer until you're 21, right? But right now, we're allowing medical professionals to do permanent changes to children's bodies. Some of these things are temporary. Some are permanent. Think about let's, the, the temporary ones are horrible. The ones that are even more horrific are the permanent changes to a child's body because Democrats think that it's okay for them to make those changes, but they don't want them to smoke or drink till they're 21. They don't want them to make the other decisions till they're 18, right? It's horrific. And here's the worst part about it. The worst part is that I believe the majority of Democrats pulled one at a change, but I know for sure the majority of Republicans it was a high, it was over 88, maybe in the 92 percentile. I can't remember. It was left on the table. We didn't do it. The legislature failed last session, which is part of the reason that I'm running for Speaker of the House. And I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. But banning gender modification in the state of Texas is low-hanging fruit. It should have happened last session. It didn't, and it must. It has to happen this time. We have to do it. It's permanent change to young children. And I just, I can't believe that we haven't fixed it already. So, you so know, the next kinda, one is, go ahead. Oh, so kind of, kind of, you know, posting off that next one, right, is sexualization of children, right, which involves, you know, all the pornographic materials and everything that has been uh, going on in our public schools. We've seen a lot of school boards flip on this and other issues related to the COVID pandemic. And so, um, what do you think needs to happen legislatively? Is there any is there any bills that are currently have been filed that would you would support uh, that would keep these pornographic materials out of schools? What what are your thoughts as far as what so what we have to look forward to? So I look at pornographic materials maybe a little different than than the uh, priority is. The priority is talking specifically about library. I think we need to add in the teachers that are trying to groom these children. I'm going to use the term groom when you have teachers that are openly talking about uh, gender and having more than what a male and a female is, and then asking kids after a week of trying to groom them, do you question your sexuality at this point? And sometimes these are elementary children. I have a six-year-old and 
I guarantee you that my four-year-old boy and my six-year-old girl can go into the bathroom when they take a bath or a shower and they can tell you why they are a boy or a girl. It's very simple. Um, I don't think that educators should be grooming our children and then providing pornography, what we would consider pornography in school libraries. I get that there are books out there that are in high schools that have things that maybe elementary children shouldn't read. It's all age appropriate. But what I don't like is uh, grooming children about gender identity in elementary school. I just, I don't, I think it's insane. And that's the mild side, right? You and I both know what's going on in the different districts, Round Rock, there's different ones uh, where there's truly pornographic materials in children's libraries. And so I think it's more than just what the average person thinks in regards to what's in the school. It's also what's being taught by the teachers that is or isn't a part of the curriculum, right? Some, some school districts are doing what's wrong. So I think if I were to put it into perspective, there's a whole bunch of bills that we can and need to do. It's from how the books are chosen, how they're purchased, where they come from, what is and isn't pornography. I think you and I know exactly what is and what isn't. Um, if adults want to choose that, that's that's their choice. But we should not be forcing this on children. I want to choose when my children learn about those things. I'm free to teach my children those things when I'm ready or when I think they're ready. Um, but I'm going to give a simple answer. I think we need to criminalize it. I think people need to be held accountable and held criminally liable for teaching pornographic things to children. They go to school. When I was a child, I had to worry about whether I could remember all of the states or I could remember my linking verbs and my ad 50, I think we had 52 prepositional phrases. We had to learn all of those things and I had to worry about whether I had them memorized. It is so wrong that in Texas schools that we have school districts that have pornography in the library and children are being groomed and they have to worry about what they think their sexuality is when they had no idea that that question even existed. It's disgusting. And it's easy to fix, right? Should be. Switching gears here, obviously the next one uh, is something you've spoken about quite frequently, especially the last few weeks. Um, and that's the priority of the Republican Party to ban Democrat chairs. Now, obviously, we alluded to you. Uh, you, of course, are a Republican. You serve with a majority of Republicans. Republicans have had the majority for, what, two decades, right, in the state legislature, every statewide elected office. And Texas has a very interesting distinction, at least certainly in the Texas House of Representatives, where the majority party appoints chairman from the minority party for at sometimes very powerful committees. Um, why don't you speak to that priority and why it's seemingly, and correct me if I'm wrong, a priority of your candidacy as um, uh, for Speaker of the Texas House? Well, let me talk uh, two different ways. One, I'm going to talk as a state rep, and then I'll come full circle and we'll talk as a candidate for Speaker of the House. As a state rep, I supported that rule change last year or last session. Um, I think it's really simple. Some people here listening might be surprised that I have friends on the House floor that are very liberal Democrats. I like many of them. I don't like their policy, and I am fully capable of being able to differentiate between the personal friendship I may or may not have with someone and the professional slash political differences that we have. My job is not, as a state rep, to go to Austin and try to be popular. My job is not 
to go down there and try to have as many friends as I can. My job is also not to go down and try to make as many people on one side or the other happy or mad. Members, we're talking members. My job is, however, to go represent 200, 205,000 people in my district and the party that I chose to put behind my name. And one of those was 80, what is it, 82% across the state, I think, of primary voters, Proposition 6 last March, said that they do not want Democrat chairs. So our job is to go down and do that. It's a priority now, too. It doesn't mean that we dislike those human beings or those people. It means that why would we give people that disagree with our eight priorities, why would we give them power and control to water down or kill or ensure that our priorities don't pass? It just doesn't pass the common sense test. Now, I had a friend of mine last session stand up and talk about, we don't want Austin to look like Washington, D.C. Well, I think it's pretty simple. We had Democrats that decided they didn't want to vote on the voter integrity bill. Think about that for two seconds. They don't want to vote on voter integrity. Okay. Um, what did they do? A lot of them got on a bus, got on an airplane with their beer, and they went to Washington, D.C. to be with the progressive liberal Democrats in Washington, D.C. Their place of duty was Austin, Texas. They were elected to be at the Capitol to do the work of Texans, which is done in the pink dome, under that pink dome, on the west side of it for me, in Austin. That's my place of duty. That's where I get $221 a day per diem to be. That, oh, by the way, after 12 days is more than $2,500, which would be a felony theft, right? They were gone more than 12 days. They weren't at their place of duty. They were in Washington, D.C. with those liberal progressive Democrats. That's where they were. So to say that we don't want Austin to be like Washington, D.C. Is, is silly at this point. And the people that said that in the past, I think, would change their tune now after they left. Now, let me tell you, as a speaker candidate, as a speaker candidate, I can't by law tell you who I will and will not hire. Parliamentarians, staff, chairmen, chairwomen, can't tell you that. Can tell you as a member, I support the Republican Party and the priorities, and I can tell you that I voted for that last time. As speaker, I would, I would, I would do the will of the people, right, and the will of the House. You can deduct whatever you want from that. The bottom line is that for a while now, Democrat or that we're we're appointing Democrats or Republicans, the minority party. And I don't think that as a state rep, that it makes sense. As a state rep, when that rule comes up on day three, I think it'll be the round or about the 12th of January. As state representative Tony Timberholt, if I'm not the speaker, I will vote for that rule. The people have asked us at 82% to do it. I'm guessing we haven't looked. In my district, it's pretty conservative. I'm guessing I'm mid to upper 80s in my district for the people that did that. So. I think it's simple. And sadly, I, 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 my expectation is that a lot of Republicans vote against it. Um, I'm hoping that's not true. I'm hoping that Republicans step up to the plate and they own that R behind their name and what, what they go to Austin to do.
Yeah, you know, for a lot of our listeners who, who maybe not be familiar, you know, the reason the speaker's race is such an important part of this is because the Speaker of the House has the authority to make these appointments, right? And so he's the one who has the sole discretion once he's in uh, to to pick chairs, right? Uh, and you have you have seniority appointments, but you also have speaker appointments uh, and chairmanships are speaker appointments. So um, it is important, but let's let's keep moving. Uh, with well, the next let, me go, let me go. I'm, I'm going to slow you down for two seconds. Please I want to talk a little bit about the speakership. Sure. Because we're on it and we'll just do it now. Yeah, let's do it. Before we go to number seven. I think it's number seven, right? No, before we go to number six. So I also think the speakership should be the least coveted position in the Texas House. And what do I mean by that? Right now, I represent 200 to 205,000. And so I'm not here. I'm here. I work for the people that elect me. The speaker should work for 149 other members and report literally those that the speaker should be under them. It should be not a coveted position. It shouldn't be a powerful position. The speaker appoints chairs. The speaker makes sure that the rules are being followed in committees and that the floor is being run according to the rules. Lobbyists come to the speaker's office and the speaker should hear them out, hug them, high five them and say, have you talked to 149 other members? However, speakers do have political affiliations. And it would be who of me to go down to the chairs that, that, I, that I point and say, where are these priorities? How is it going? Are there roadblocks? What do you need help with? Is this at the forefront of your mind? Is there anything stopping you from hearing the bill? Again, what do you need from me to help you move barriers to get this through calendars and get it to the floor, right? So I think that that position shouldn't be a desirable, attractive position to be in. That's just my thoughts. And when I hear people say, you know, why would you cut me up? Why would you force me to take that vote? What I would say is we should own everything we do in Austin. Everything we should do should be transparent to the people that elect us. Transparency in government says that the voters should know everything we do. And it's really that simple. I mean, I'm just, it's the simple. It's just, I would tell members and I would tell the, the public, it's just another vote on the first day. It's just one vote. Let's get it done. Let's move on. Yeah, I uh, uh, I think the question I always ask, you know, is is why would you be afraid to go on the record on any of this stuff, right? Um, uh, there, you know, in my time in the House, you know, of course, uh, you know, I previously worked for Representative Stickland, who was famous for calling uh, record votes. And in my experience, at least, there's only one reason why people don't want to go on the record. It's because they don't want to be held accountable by their voters back in their district, and they don't want people to know. So you get voice votes and all these other other things. But um, let, let us switch gears to uh, abolish abortion. Of course, we had Roe v. Wade overturned, uh, which is something I Honestly, if you would ask me two years ago, I would have bet every dollar in my bank account this would not happen, but it did. And the uh, the trigger law went into effect in Texas. And so the question is now, because this I think the RPT convention happened just very, very shortly before Roe v. Wade was overturned. So the question on this one is, are we playing defense here? You know, are we just trying to prevent uh, the left from pushing back on this? Or are there other things we can do uh, that still need to be done in Texas law to, to, to safeguard uh, children's lives? There's always things that we can do, right? There's always going to be things that you can do. But I think we have to do both. I think we have to be offensive and defensive because if we just sit and wait for the left to come in, they're going to, right? A few sessions ago, they came forward with, uh, allowing men and women's bathrooms. And look where we are now. We have insanity in regards to what men and women are and what they can and can't do and should and shouldn't be able to do. 
And so I think we have to do both. I think we have to protect what's there while we also uh, go on the offense and fix the shortfall. But let me be clear. The three of us on this call could never in our million years imagine what it would be like to be a woman that feels like they need to go do that. So I want to be clear. We can't, it brings tears to my eyes. We cannot imagine what it feels like to do that. But what I would plead to the people that disagree with the three of us, I'm getting a little teary-eyed talking about it, is that is a human life inside that woman. And it's hard to get people to understand that because the left use ter uses terminology like it's, a, it's, a, it's not a fetus, it's a clump of cells. They do these things to desensitize people. The fact of the matter is, um, it's a human. It's a human being that's inside that woman. And no matter how horrific we could never imagine it would be for someone to want to go do that, I also have to think about how horrific it is that that life is taken, that that life is taken. And so I will tell you that that is a very serious priority for me. All of these eight priorities are. But I'm a Christian and I'm, a, I'm just a guy that decided to run for office. I believe in life. I believe in God. And people would say, you can't mix the two. Well, the, the church and state, we won't even go into the definition of it, but this is not what they intended when they did that. What I would say is it's our job. We have to be offensive and defensive because every time an abortion is done, there's a life lost, right? Every time that human life is lost. So I take a lot of pride in telling people that I openly and gladly support pro-life legislation. And I would say that over the course of time, over the decades, that uh, abortion has killed future leaders. Um, it has killed people that we could never imagine and fathom. And I think we're gonna look back over time and, and really think that that was a horrific time in history of America that we, that we took innocent, uh, unborn children that couldn't defend themselves and we took their lives. Sorry, I had to touch that because I'm passionate about that. Yeah, I think another part, not to prolong this one too long, but I do think if I remember correctly, <clears throat> another part of that priority specifically is also trying to get ahead of what might be unenforcement by, let's say, liberal district attorneys in different jurisdictions, those litigators, right, uh, to where maybe because they have some political position where they agree, they pro-death, right? They agree with this sort of thing. Um, what do you think is, does the legislature have an appetite to try to get ahead of that, to stop them from being able to do that? So interestingly, I think, I think one way to attack it is going to be, it's going to kill two birds with one stone, right? holding districts attorney, a district attorneys across the state and prosecutors accountable. So we have district attorneys that will not prosecute certain things and they're letting criminals out into the streets and there's no punishments for certain behaviors that are causing chaos throughout the state. So I think one of the defense or one of the offensive things that we have to do is we have to hold prosecutors across the state accountable, Democrat and Republican, right? They both have to be held accountable for uh, upholding the law. We're a, a, again, we mentioned a few moments ago that we're a nation, nation and state of law and order. Part of that law and order is that there are certain things that district attorneys, I think that they shall prosecute, right? Um, sadly, across America, it, it's worse across America than it is in Texas, but we know the communities in the state 
where district attorneys are letting people free into the into the community to to harm other people again. And so I think one of the things we can do is we have to find the right proportionality to hold district attorneys accountable for doing what's right. And that's going to be difficult, right? Because there's a certain percentage of just being a district attorney where you have the autonomy to do things and and look at the situation and individual. Um, but there's some large abuses happening um, in very liberal counties across the state and across the country. So I think it's going to be a tough thing to balance. Uh, but I have faith that somehow we're going to come together and try to do something uh, to protect, protect Texans, even the unborn children. Awesome. So uh, next is the Second Amendment, uh, something close to my heart, you know, being being in my previous office, I worked on constitutional carry for six years. Schaefer finally got it across the finish line this last go around, which we celebrated. Another thing I, I did not think would happen, but it did. Um, so now, you know, with that said, what else is there to do? Or yet again, are we are we in defensive mode here? Offensive, both? What do you expect to happen in gun rights this next go round? First, I want to talk about Matt Shaver. He's my peer. I was in the Freedom Caucus uh, with him back in the day. And I was really proud that he brought that across. I want to tell people I was in the committee that that, that he and he, he's on the committee, too. I cannot think of a better person to have carried that bill that literally brought it across the line. I don't care who it is. It could have been the chairman. It could have been anyone. I think he was the perfect person to carry that bill. And he did amazing in committee. And I didn't, I mean, I thought he did great in committee. And then he went to the floor and he carried it across the line with dignity, respect. He literally, I, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by how well he did on that bill. And I can't say thank you enough to him uh, for bringing that across. Now, what do I think it means? I, I think our, our jobs, let's just, government, a government elected official. I believe that all rights are inalienable and it's written on paper. Founding fathers put that on paper. Inalienable rights are God-given rights. So it's not the role of government to grant rights or take them away. It's the government's job. It's our job to protect those inalienable God-given rights. And so if people believe in what's written in those documents about inalienable rights, and they believe that we protect rights, we don't grant them or take them away. The Second Amendment, just like the First Amendment, just like our inalienable God-given rights, and that's our job to protect those rights. And so I envision uh, that we're going to be probably on the defensive quite a bit on this, and it's going to be, they're going to come at uh, Republicans hard with red flag laws. I think that's coming. Um, when people say, I hear Democrats often say, the Second Amendment was created for hunters. Well, that's not true. And that's not a fair assessment. I'm not saying that we'll ever be in this position. But the Second Amendment was created for, for people to protect them from an oppressive government that tries to overrun them and overrule them. And so it's going to be incumbent upon us. And I'm glad that it's one of the priorities for us to protect, which is our job. We shouldn't be chipping away or trying to take away, and we shouldn't be adding either. Our job is to protect inalienable, God-given rights. And so I'm glad that that's one of the priorities, and I'm going to stand up hard for it. Probably more than you expected from me. I, I'm sorry, but I'm passionate about a lot of these. 
I, again, this is one of those I'll, I'll add on. <clears throat> I certainly agree. I think it'll be the the red flag uh, law approach. And, and sadly, you know, in the wake of things like in Uvalde and um, everything else, you'll you'll um, I think you'll see people use those as political opportunities, which is unfortunate. Um, <clears throat> second, lad, I, one of the other things there, there's gun groups around the state that at least still take issue with the fact that I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that constitutional carry provision only applies to 21 and older, right? Uh, so not 18 year olds uh, to 21 year olds. Um, obviously, you can enlist in the military uh, before that time, as you alluded to earlier, but you can't carry or constitutional uh, carry in the state of Texas. Thoughts? Uh, I assume, is there a political appetite to change that? Do you not think they want to reopen that can of worms? Let me touch on both of those. And I'm, you might have to remind me of that, that part, but let's talk red flag laws. I want to say something I forgot to say. Due process in every aspect of everything we do is important. You shouldn't be able to take someone's weapons without due process because then they're left unprotected. So let's come back to what you just talked about. You were talking about 18 and 21. So in the legislature, we have to bring things across the line that, we, that will pass. It didn't look, I believe, to Matt like it was going to pass at 18. I don't think Matt wanted 21, um, but it, it ended up being 21. Um, I'm with you. I think that uh, 18 is the legal age for most of the things. You're considered an adult. You can join the military. You can do most things. You can vote. Um, some Democrats would want 16-year-olds to vote. I think that's insane. I think the argument was that people in the legislature didn't feel like they were adult enough to make good decisions to have and carry guns. But the left also said that this was gonna create chaos the same way that they said it when concealed carry happened a uh, long time ago. I don't know of any reports where open carry has caused chaos. Have you guys heard of any that open carry caused chaos? Now, everyone's gonna have their own thoughts and ideas about open carry and I, I may offend people right now, but I. I think it's silly to open carry. If you want to show people that you have a gun, go ahead. It's legal. Do it legally. Do it the right way. Um, I'm glad it passed. If an 18-year-old wants to open carry, I think they should be able to as well. And open carry did not cause chaos. 18-year-olds are adults. And I think that the way to go on the offensive is absolutely uh, to try to make sure that 18 year olds can carry guns. And there's some Republicans that disagree with it in the house and at home. Right. Um, but again, it's a priority. Um, I was in the military at 17. I carried weapons. I was, uh, I was a military member at 17. I know 17. I, I, I mean, I know 18 year olds are fully capable of making good decisions. Um, at least the ones that I hung around, some make bad decisions, right? But I think that the majority of 18-year-olds that want to open carry should be able to. And uh, we've proven that the gun laws we pass do not create chaos. Open carry and constitutional carry, uh, the uh, uh, carrying a weapon concealed, I don't know how many years ago that passed, but it's not, carried, it's not caused issues or problems like people thought. So uh, I think that that's a good way to, to try to change. 
So uh, last on the list here is educational freedom, parental rights, and ultimately we're talking about school choice, likely, or at least among the topics that are going to be discussed in this priority. And uh, there has been a lot of noise about this Uh, nationwide. You know, Corey DeAngelis has been uh, very vocal. Uh, He's been posting in, you know, uh, Texas threads on Twitter. Uh, We have had a couple things come out. Uh, Dan Patrick kind of alluded to this in his press conference, but another thing he said was that his intention was to exclude exclude rural counties if there is school choice legislation. And so there's a lot, honestly, there's just so many things I want to ask you about school choice. Um, but I think I'm just going to leave it open and and just give us your thoughts on school yeah. choice legislation. Uh, I, I believe you have a master's in education, right? And so we want to hear uh, your, uh, your thoughts on this specifically. So I think people might be surprised. I was in the military, knew I was going to retire. I thought, man, I wouldn't mind becoming an administrator in education. So I went and got my master's in educational leadership K through 12. Thought that's what I wanted to do. And I'm, I'll tell you what, I was at a school today because of the business that I'm in. And we can't be thankful enough for the, the kind hearts and hard work that some of our educators do every day. I think the average teacher, my mother-in-law is a retired 38 year teacher. My stepmom did 40 years. My daughter is just starting her career in Omaha, Nebraska as a elementary school teacher. So I have I have school teachers in my family, and my heart goes out to them. It's a tough job, and I'm thankful for every one of them. School choice does not mean shut down public education. I want to be clear. No one on this call is saying that school choice means shut down public ed. Look, public education is for some students. They assimilate into it. It's for them. It's wonderful for them. It's great for them. Some of them, it's horrible. And some of the public school systems are very broken, like very broken. But I think that once you take the average educator and the brainwashing that happens, my mother-in-law thought that uh, school choice was horrible and then she retired. She's at a charter school now. She's like, oh my gosh, they do it so different. Um, I can't believe that I thought these things for so many years. When you take educators and you show them what you really mean, we don't want to shut you down. We are not trying to take money. We're trying to provide the taxpayer with the choice that is best suited for their child and their demographic and their culture and their religion and their whatever it is. Take your tax dollars and use it for your child that is best for that individual. I think we can all agree on this call that every child's different. My children are different than yours. Yours are different than the neighbor, and one size doesn't fit all. I'm going to reiterate this over and over again now, and when I go to Austin, we're not saying shut down public education. We're saying every child learns different. Every child needs something different. Some children cannot do a structured, they just can't do structure, and so they homeschool. Some children do great in the charter or private schools out there that are called prep schools, and they go to school two or three days a week, and the parents help them the rest. Some need absolute constant assistance. Some need some level in between. Some families think, for instance, my child goes to a religious school. Um, Everyone has different needs, wants, and desires for their child to create the best outcome. And I think even the educators that say this is bad would say, I want the best outcome for the children. Well, if that's what they want, support school choice. School choice is not going to bankrupt schools. Historically, when you look across the country, when it's done, 
it's actually the amount of children that go use it and do it is less than the population growth. Their schools will still grow. They won't grow as quickly, but they'll still grow. And so I just, I wanted to share that before we really dive in deeper on, on, on school choice for people that might be watching that may be against it. Because there are going to be people out there that see this and think, gosh, school choice, I've always been against it. Well, think about the child, the individual child, your child, your grandchild, your neighbor, whoever it is, someone in a different demographic in a zip code that's really bad and maybe the schools are suffering and struggling. Maybe it's a school district like Round Rock where they have pornography in the library and the parents are like, oh my gosh, I think what creates better public schools is what happens in a free market. When you, when you provide opportunity and choice, it creates a school district that is now competing for those children. I will tell you that I'm, I'm semi-fortunate in Arlington, at least in Arlington. They provide a lot of choice inside the school district that other districts don't. But I will openly tell you that even those choices aren't for every child. And so school choice is so important. And I'm glad that this is on as a priority. And I think it's sad what's going to create this being important in the legislature. I think what's going to create school choice being important this time is the chaos across the country and in some of the districts where children are being groomed and they have pornography in the library and they have teachers that are trying to teach their children about gender uh, identity and trying to say there's more than one gender when it's simple. There's boys and girls. You can think you're something else. Hey, you, you can do that if you want to. But there is a boy and there is a girl. It is genetics. It is chemistry. It is, I mean, it's simple. And so I think those things that are happening in schools across the country and across the state is what's pushing this even harder now. And I think it's horrible that that's happening, but I think it may, may very well be what pushes school choice across the line. It, it's interesting you say that. Tim and I talk about this pretty frequently as well, right? Where I, I think you're right in that there's so many things that have happened the last few years, whether it be to what you were talking about with pornography in schools, the grooming, uh, even a combination of like teachers or parents seeing what their kids are learning via COVID, right? Uh, um, all, all kind of create this, maybe the fervor or groundswell of support seemingly going into the next session. I think the question on our minds is, you know, we look back at last session, the session before, session before that. Last session specifically, the only vote that happened on school choice or related to school choice was actually on the opposite side of it, right? It was budget night, there was an amendment, and uh, overwhelmingly, the House supported an amendment uh, where it basically said no money can be used for any voucher or school choice, you know, similar program. Um, and so the question I think in our mind is what has changed? Has the politics changed? Is there enough fervor to where it's pushed some of those lawmakers that have historically voted against it to suddenly be supportive of it? Um, what are your thoughts on that? So I'm going to be honest and tell you if leadership doesn't change, it doesn't move across the line. I told you that leadership shouldn't dictate what happens. It should be the least coveted job in the house, but leadership inevitably in a respectful way pushes the priorities of their party in a very respectful way by trying to remove barriers. I don't feel like the current leadership is going to do that. I'm also gonna be honest and tell you that do I think school choice passes? Sadly, I've been there eight years and I, I, I wanna tell you it's gonna pass this session, I want to. I see more people supporting it, but I don't see 76 people supporting it. 
Um, but I think we can't let up. We cannot let our foot off the gas pedal because just like every child that is taken by abortion, every child that's born is important too. And we owe it to them to fight for them, to allow them to have the best choice and opportunity that's going to create the best outcomes. And I trust the parents to do that, right? It's not my job as a legislator to say, you shall go to public school. I feel like my job is to create the best opportunities, the best wide path of choices. Instead of this, I want to do this. Let there be other choices and allow the parents to decide what's going to best suit their child. But I want to be fair and I want to be transparent. I want that to come across the finish line. The votes aren't there yet, but there's more votes. And sadly, I don't think the left is going to let up on their crazy ideological changes in society. And I think it's going to start swinging the other way. I look at this, if you would have asked 10 or four years ago if, an, uh, if, if, if Roe v. Wade would be changed, people would have told you no. Last year, people would have told you there's not going to be school choice. I see school choice on the horizon, but I don't see it in 2023. I, I'm going to vote for it. I want it. But part of these calls and part of talking openly about stuff is managing expectations. And I just don't see it coming across the line. Awesome. Well, we, Hey, we appreciate your honesty on that, Tony. Uh, I can tell you that I'm pretty sure this is the longest bonus podcast we've ever done. I have, I I no, I've enjoyed every second of it. I wish we could talk for three more hours, but we know you're a busy person. Uh, We thank you for coming on. I would like you really quickly tell people how uh, they can get, what's your website, what socials are you on? How can they plug into you and, uh, and, and what you do? Yeah. TonyTinderholt.com is our website. Go on there. I respond to the emails on there. The good, the bad, the ugly emails. You're getting a response from me. TonyTinderholt.com. Facebook, I think it's Tinderholt for Texas or Tony Tinderholt from Texas on Facebook. Twitter, man, that's a rough place to be. I, I hope it's getting better, but that's where we got all of our death threats. We post a little on there. If you want to get a hold of me directly, the website and Facebook are the best. We do very little on Twitter. Hope that changes, right? I hope it changes. Um, contact our office if you need help and you're in the district. Shannon is amazing. She'll help you. Uh, we're going to be at the Capitol soon, so that number is going to work starting in January. I'll be honest, I cannot wait to get down to Austin to get the work done for the constituents and the people in the state, great state of Texas. I, I love what I do. I can't believe that I get to do this. I'm honored to do it. I'm happy and I'm frustrated on every given day while I'm down in Austin. Uh, but the one thing for sure is that I love working for you, the people of Texas, and uh, I can't wait to get to work and uh, do the work that you ask us to do down there. Awesome. As you know, uh, we will be watching uh, and and paying attention. Uh, We're confident. I'm sure you will have a good session as you have been very, very consistent. Uh, Thank you once again. It was our pleasure to host you. uh, And we hope to talk to you again soon, Tony. Hey, thank you very much. For even more content, follow us on social media at Texas Taxpayers on Facebook and Instagram at Texas underscore taxpayers on Twitter. Subscribe to The Fiscal Note, our weekly email jam-packed full of information important to Texas taxpayers at texastaxpayers.com slash subscribe. And then make sure to check out our Texas Prosperity Plan, texastaxpayers.com slash TPP. Thanks. (laughs) 